She, Chapter Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. She by H. Ryder Haggard, Chapter Eleven: The Plain of Cor. About an hour before sundown, we at last, to my unbounded gratitude, emerged from the great belt of marsh onto land that swelled upwards in a succession of rolling waves. Just on the hither side of the crest of the first wave, we halted for the night. My first act was to examine Leo's condition. It was, if anything, worse than in the morning, and a new and very distressing feature vomiting set in and continued till dawn not one wink of sleep did i get that night for i passed it in assisting ustane who was one of the most gentle and indefatigable nurses i ever saw to wait upon leo and job however the air here was warm and genial without being too hot and there were no mosquitoes to speak of also we were above the level of the marsh mist which lay stretched beneath us like the dim smoke pall over a city, lit up here and there by the wandering globes of thin fire. Thus it will be seen that we were, speaking comparatively, in clover. By dawn on the following morning Leo was quite light-headed, and fancied that he was divided into halves. I was dreadfully distressed, and began to wonder with a sort of sick fear what the end of the attack would be. Alas, I heard but too much of how these attacks generally terminate. As I was wondering, Bilali came up and said that we must be getting on, more especially as, in his opinion, if Leo did not reach some spot where he could be quiet and have proper nursing, within the next twelve hours his life would only be a matter of a day or two. I could not but agree with him, so we got Leo into the litter and started on. Ustane walking by his side to keep the flies off him, and see that he did not throw himself out on to the ground. Within half an hour of sunrise we had reached the top of the rise of which I had spoken, and a most beautiful view broke our gaze. Beneath us was a rich stretch of country, verdant with grass and lovely with foliage and flowers. In the background, at a distance, so far as I could judge, of some eighteen miles from where we then stood, a huge and extraordinary mountain rose abruptly from the plain. The base of this great mountain appeared to consist of a grassy slope, but rising from this, I should say, from subsequent observation, at a height of about five hundred feet above the level of the plain, was a most tremendous and absolutely precipitous wall of bare rock, quite twelve or fifteen hundred feet in height. The shape of the mountain, which was undoubtedly of volcanic origin, was round, and of course, as only a segment of its circle was visible, it was difficult to estimate its exact size, which was enormous. I afterwards discovered that it could cover less than fifty square miles of ground. Anything more grand and imposing than the sight presented by this great natural castle, starting in solitary grandeur from the level of the plain, I never saw, and I suppose I never shall. Its very solitude added to its majesty, and its towering cliffs seemed to kiss the sky. Indeed, generally speaking, 
They were clothed in clouds that lay in fleecy masses upon their broad and level battlements. I sat up in my hammock, and gazed out across the plain at this thrilling and majestic sight, and I suppose that Bilali noticed it, for he brought his litter alongside. "'Behold the house of she who must be obeyed,' he said. "'Had ever a queen such a throne before?' "'It is wonderful, my father,' I answered. "'But how do we enter? Those cliffs look hard to climb. Thou shalt see, my baboon. Look now at the path below us. What thinkest thou that it is? Thou art a wise man. Come, tell me.' I looked, and saw what appeared to be the line of roadway running straight towards the base of the mountain, though it was covered with turf. There were high banks on each side of it, broken here and there, but fairly continuous on the whole, the meaning of which I did not understand. It seemed so very odd that anybody should embank a roadway. "'Well, my father,' I answered, "'I suppose that it is a road. Otherwise I should have been inclined to say that it was the bed of a river, or rather,' I added, observing the extraordinary directness of the cutting, "'of a canal.' Bilali, who, by the way, was none the worse for his immersion of the day before, nodded his head sagely as he replied, "'Thou art right, my son. It is a channel cut out by those who were before us in this place to carry away water. Of this I am sure, within the rocky circle of the mountain whither we journey was once a great lake. But those who were before us, by wonderful arts of which I know not, hewed a path for the water through the solid rock of the mountain, piercing even to the bed of the lake.' But first they cut the channel that thou seest across the plain. Then, when at last the water burst out, it rushed down the channel that had been made to receive it, and crossed this plain till it reached the low land behind the rise, and there, perchance, it made the swamp through which we have come. Then, when the lake was drained dry, the people whereof I speak built a mighty city on its bed, whereof naught but ruins, and the name of Kor yet remaineth, and from age to age hewed the caves and passages that thou wilt see. It may be, I answered, but if so, how is it that the lake does not fill up again with the rains and the water of the springs?' "'Nay, my son, the people were a wise people, and they left a drain to keep it clear. Seest thou the river to the right?' And he pointed to fair-sized stream that wound away across the plain, some four miles from us. "'That is the drain, and it comes out through the mountain wall where this cutting goes in. At first, perhaps, the water ran down this canal, but afterwards the people turned it and used the cutting for a road.' "'And is there no other place where one may enter into the great mountain?' I asked, "'except through that drain?' "'There is a place,' he answered, "'where cattle and men on foot may cross with much labour, but it is secret. "'A year mightest thou search, and shouldst never find it. "'It is only used once a year, when the herds of cattle that have been fatting on the slopes of the mountain and on the plain are driven into the space within. "'And does she live there always?' I asked. "'Or does she come at times without the mountain?' "'Nay, my son, where she is, there she is.' 
By now we were well on to the great plain, and I was examining with delight the varied beauty of its semi-tropical flowers and trees, the latter of which grew singly, or at most in clumps of three or four, much of the timber being of large size, and belonging apparently to a variety of evergreen oak. There were also many palms, some of them more than one hundred feet high, and the largest and most beautiful tree-ferns that I ever saw, about which hung clouds of jeweled honeysuckers and great winged butterflies. Wandering about among the trees, or crouching in the long and feathered grass, were all varieties of game, from rhinoceroses down. I saw a rhinoceros, a buffalo, a large herd, elant, quagga, and sable antelope, the most beautiful of all the bucks, not to mention many smaller varieties of game, and three ostriches which scudded away at our approach like white drift before a gale. So plentiful was the game that at last I could stand it no longer. I had a single barrel sporting martini with me in the litter, the express being too cumbersome, and espying a beautiful fat eland running himself under one of the oak-like trees, I jumped out of the litter and proceeded to creep as near to him as I could. He let me come within eighty yards, then turned his head and stared at me, preparatory to running away. I lifted the rifle, and taking him about midway down the shoulder, for he was side on to me, fired. I never made a cleaner shot or a better kill in all my small experience, for the great buck sprang right up into the air and fell dead. The bearers, who had all halted to see the performance, gave a murmur of surprise, an unwanted compliment from these sullen people, who never appear to be surprised at anything, and a party of the guard at once ran off to cut the animal up. As for myself, though I was longing to have a look at him, I sauntered back to my litter as though I had been in the habit of killing Eland all my life, feeling that I have gone up several degrees in the estimation of the Amahaga, who look on the whole thing as a very high-class manifestation of witchcraft. As a matter of fact, however, I had never seen an Eland in wild state before. Bilali received me with enthusiasm. "'It is wonderful, my son, the baboon,' he cried. "'Wonderful! Thou art a very great man, though so ugly. Had I not seen, surely I would never have believed. And thou sayest that thou wilt teach me to slay in this fashion?' "'Certainly, my father,' I said airily. "'It is nothing.' But all the same, I firmly made up my mind that when my father, Bilali, began to fire, I would without fail lie down or take refuge behind a tree. After this little incident, nothing happened of any note till about an hour and a half before sundown, when we arrived beneath the shadow of the towering volcanic mass that I have already described. It is quite impossible for me to describe its grim grandeur as it appeared to me while my patient bearers toiled along the bed of the ancient watercourse toward the spot where the rich brown-hued cliff shot up from precipice to precipice till its crown lost itself in a cloud. All I can say is that it almost awed me by the intensity of its lonesome and most solemn greatness. 
on we went up the bright and sunny slope till at last the creeping shadows from above swallowed up its brightness and presently we began to pass through a cutting hewn in the living rock deeper and deeper grew this marvellous work which must i should say have employed thousands of men for many years indeed how it was ever executed at all without the aid of blasting powder or dynamite i cannot to this day imagine it is and must remain one of the mysteries of that wild land i can only suppose that these cuttings and the vast caves that had been hollowed out of the rocks they pierced were the state undertakings of the people of kor who lived here in the dim lost ages of the world and as in the case of the egyptian monuments were executed by the forced labor of tens of thousands of captives carried on through an indefinite number of centuries but who were the people at last we reached the face of the precipice itself and found ourselves looking into the mouth of a dark tunnel that forcibly reminded me of those undertaken by our nineteenth-century engineers in the construction of railway lines out of this tunnel flowed a considerable stream of water indeed though i do not think that i have mentioned it we had followed this stream which ultimately developed into the river i have already described as winding away to the right from the spot where the cutting in the solid rock commenced half of this cutting formed a channel for the stream and half which was placed on a slightly higher level eight feet perhaps was devoted to the purposes of a roadway at the termination of the cutting however the stream turned off across the plain and followed a channel of its own at the mouth of the cave the cavalcade was halted and while the men employed themselves in lighting some earthenware lamps they had brought with them bilali descending from his litter informed me politely but firmly that the orders of she were that we were now to be blindfolded so that we should not learn the secret of the paths through the bowels of the mountains to this i of course assented cheerfully enough but job who was now very much better notwithstanding the journey did not like it at all fancying i believe that it was but a preliminary step to being hot-potted he was however a little consoled when i pointed out to him that there were no hot-pots at hand and so far as i knew no fire to heat them in as for poor leo after turning restlessly for hours he had to my deep thankfulness at last dropped off into a sleep or stupor i do not know which so there was no need to blindfold him the blindfolding was performed by binding a piece of the yellowish linen whereof those of the amahaga who condescended to wear anything in particular made their dresses tightly round the eyes this linen i afterwards discovered was taken from the tombs and was not as i had at first supposed of native manufacture the bandage was then knotted at the back of the head and finally brought down again and the ends bound under the chin to prevent it slipping ustane was by the way also blindfolded i do not know why unless it was from fear that she should impart the secrets of the route to us this operation performed 
we started on once more, and soon, by the echoing sound of the footsteps of the bearers, and the increased noise of the water caused by reverberation in a confined space, I knew that we were entering into the bowels of the great mountain. It was an eerie sensation, being borne along into the dead heart of the rock we knew not whither, but I was getting used to eerie sensations by this time, and by now was pretty well prepared for anything. So I lay still and listened to the tramp, tramp of the bearers, and the rushing of the water, and tried to believe that I was enjoying myself. Presently the men set up the melancholy little chant that I had heard on the first night when we were captured in the whale-boat, and the effect produced by their voices was very curious and quite indescribable. After a while the air began to get exceedingly thick and heavy, so much so indeed that I felt as though I were going to choke, till at length the litter took a sharp turn, then another and another, and the sound of the running water ceased. After this the air was fresher again, but the turns were continuous, and to me, blindfolded as I was, most bewildering. I tried to keep a map of them in my mind, in case it might ever be necessary for us to try and escape by this route, but, needless to say, failed utterly. Another half-hour or so passed, and then suddenly I became aware that we were once more in the open air. I could see the light through my bandage and feel its freshness on my face. A few more minutes, and the caravan halted, and I heard Bilali order Ustane to remove her bandage and undo ours. Without waiting for her attentions, I got the knot of mine loose, and looked out. As I anticipated, we had passed right through the precipice, and were now on the farther side, and immediately beneath its beetling face. The first thing I noticed was that the cliff is not nearly so high here, not so high, I should say, by five hundred feet, which proved that the bed of the lake, or rather of the vast ancient crater in which we stood, was much above the level of the surrounding plain. For the rest, we found ourselves in a huge rock-surrounded cup, not unlike that of the first place where we had sojourned, only ten times the size. Indeed, I could only just make out the frowning line of the opposite cliffs. A great portion of the plain thus enclosed by nature was cultivated, and fenced in with walls of stone, placed there to keep the cattle and goats, of which there were large herds about, from breaking into the gardens. Here and there rose great grass mounds, and some miles away towards the centre I thought that I could see the outline of colossal ruins. I had no time to observe anything more at the moment, for we were instantly surrounded by crowds of Amahaga, similar in every particular to those with whom we were already familiar, who, though they spoke little, pressed round us so closely as to obscure the view to a person lying in a hammock. Then, all of a sudden, a number of armed men arranged in companies, and marshalled by officers who held ivory wands in their hands, came running swiftly towards us, having, so far as I could make out, emerged from the face of the precipice like ants from their burrows. 
These men, as well as their officers, were all robed in addition to the usual leopard skin, and, as I gathered, formed the bodyguard of she herself. Their leader advanced to Bilali, saluted him by placing his ivory wand transversely across his forehead, and then asked some question which I could not catch, and Bilali, having answered him, the whole regiment turned, and marched along the side of the cliff, our cavalcade of litters following in their track. After going thus for about half a mile, we halted once more, in front of the mouth of a tremendous cave, measuring about sixty feet in height by eighty wide, and here Bilali descended finally, and requested Job and myself to do the same. Leo, of course, was far too ill to do anything of the sort. I did so, and we entered the great cave, into which the light of the setting sun penetrated for some distance, while beyond the reach of the daylight it was faintly illuminated with lamps, which seemed to me to stretch away for an almost immeasurable distance, like the gas lights of an empty London street. The first thing I noticed was that the walls were covered with sculptures in bas-relief, of a sort pictorially speaking, similar to those that I had described upon the vases. Love scenes principally, then hunting pictures, pictures of executions, and the torture of criminals by the placing of a presumably red-hot pot upon the head showing whence our hosts had derived this pleasant practice. There were very few battle-pieces, though many of duels, and men running and wrestling, and from this fact I am led to believe that this people were not much subject to attack by exterior foes, either on account of the isolation of their position, or because of their great strength. Between the pictures were columns of stone characters, of a formation absolutely new to me. At any rate, they were neither Greek, nor Egyptian, nor Hebrew, nor Assyrian, that I am sure of. They looked more like Chinese writings than any other that I am acquainted with. Near to the entrance of the cave, both pictures and writings were worn away, but further in they were in many cases absolutely fresh and perfect as the day on which the sculptor had ceased to work on them. The regiment of guards did not come further than the entrance to the cave, where they formed up to let us pass through. On entering the place itself we were, however, met by a man robed in white, who bowed humbly, but said nothing, which, as it afterwards appeared that he was a deaf-mute, was not very wonderful. Running at right angles to the cave, at a distance of some twenty feet from the entrance, was a smaller cave or wide gallery that was pierced into the rock both to the right and to the left of the main cavern. In the front of the gallery, to our left, stood two guards, from which circumstance I argued that it was the entrance to the apartments of she herself. The mouth of the right-hand gallery was unguarded, and along it the mute indicated that we were to go. Walking a few yards down this passage, which was lighted with lamps, we came to the entrance of a chamber having a curtain made of some grass material, not unlike a Zanzibar mat in appearance, hung over the doorway. 
this the mute drew back with another profound obeisance and led the way into a good-sized apartment hewn of course out of the solid rock but to my great relief lighted by means of a shaft pierced in the face of the precipice in this room was a stone bedstead pots full of water for washing and beautifully tanned leopard skins to serve as blankets here we left leo who was still sleeping heavily and with him stopped ustane i noticed that the mute gave her a very sharp look as much as to say who are you and by whose order do you come here then he conducted us to another similar room which job took and then to two more that were respectively occupied by bilali and myself end of chapter eleven this has been a LibriVox recording. She by H. Ryder Haggard, read for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during November 2007.